Welcome back. Talked about this a couple weeks ago on June 29th. The U.S. Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions, essentially ruling that such programs violated the Equal Protection Clause to the 14th Amendment. Now, since it ends race-conscious admissions, the question is, what about these legacy admissions? Legacy meaning that you are more likely to get into a school if your parents or relatives are alumni. Four days after the the ruling by the court, a civil rights group filed a suit uh, challenging legacy admissions at Harvard, saying the practice discriminates against students of color by giving an unfair boost to mostly white children of alumni. I was wa- As I was watching the reporting of this on CNN, I happened to see my next guest who was talking about this, and he was so compelling that I had to bring him on. Professor Sanford Williams is a lecturer at law at UCLA. He's earned a bachelor and MBA at Cornell, a law degree at University Virginia School of Law. Thank you so much, Professor Williams, for joining me. Oh, thank you, Karen, for having me, and I appreciate you and the show and the work that you do. Glad to be here. Thank you. So you now you and your wife are both alumni uh, of the University of Virginia, and your three children all went there as well, and you have now three grandchildren. And tell me what your opinion is as to whether your family's legacy with University of Virginia should be considered in their admission should they choose to apply to the school. So, well, yes, my wife, Anastasia, and I, and all three of our kids, Kiara, Stanford, and Nia Cece, graduated from UVA, my daughter-in-law, Anne. What's up, Anne? Um, <laughs> so we are very happy with and grateful for our experience there. But this is a complex and nuanced issue. I think at base, legacy status is a hereditary privilege, um, something that is bestowed upon folks that they didn't earn. Um, and yes, as you mentioned, we do have three grandchildren. And selfishly, I would love for our family legacy to be considered if they apply to UVA. But given the Supreme Court's decision in the recent SFA versus Harvard and UNC cases that you mentioned, uh, which ended affirmative action in college admissions, I try to look at what's fair for everyone and not just for me. And considering that 70% of legacy and donor-related students are white, to have a process that is fair, equitable, and meritorious for all, I think you really must consider legacy. You should not consider legacy status if you don't consider race. So I believe you should not consider legacy status if you don't consider race. And and you said, you know, the stats are all over. You know, 70% of all donor-related and legacy are white uh, students, and the applicants who apply who are legacies are seven times more likely to be admitted, six to seven percent more likely to be admitted, which is which is um, amazing. And I think a lot of people, Professor, would say, well, you're not considering race when it comes to legacy. So that really doesn't discriminate necessarily by the actual rule against race. The effect, however, is racially discriminatory. How do you how do you make that argument? Um, I think that you hit the point exactly. You're not explicitly considering race, but considering that 70% of the students that we discussed are white, you are implicitly considering it. And there are far more students who have legacy status and will be affected than their students who are affected by affirmative action. So again, the Supreme Court is saying, we can't consider race based on affirmative action, uh, then the corollary should be that you can't consider race and the proxy of legacy uh, because most of the students who benefit um, are white. And I looked at the stats for Harvard, for example. I think Harvard started around 1636, and the first black student was admitted until 1847. So there was a 211-year head start for white students. So even though you're not explicitly mentioning race, you are implicitly considering it, which is why 
I don't think you should consider legacy given the current status and paradigm we have. So let's take some arguments that I heard when I was watching CNN. Um, the idea is, and, and you're going to counter this, the idea is that legacies are more connected and more loyal and devoted to the school. I think Michael Smirkanish, the, the, uh, the guy who was interviewing you, was talking about how he went to a reunion. Of course, they're all white older gentleman. And he was saying right. that, uh, you know, hey, we're all so devoted. We're like such rah-rahs. Like, that's a reason. That devotion is such a good reason to, to admit somebody into a school. Does that have any merit at all? You know what? I think there is some merit. I mean, I, again, I mentioned this is a nuanced issue. Um, there are definitely benefits to legacy admission. I mean, if I bring it down to a personal level, and I've mentioned this to uh, McConaughey, it's totally cool that my kids and my wife and I and daughter-in-law can talk about UVA's basketball national championship or swimming championship, or we have a phenomenal African-American woman as our athletic director, Carla Williams. Um, or we can talk about the high graduation rates that we have for African-Americans at UVA. There are many things that are great that we can bond over, which is very helpful. And uh, to be frank, I mean, there are other benefits to the university. Students who are legacy are probably more likely and more connected to the school. Uh, they're more heavily invested and engaged with the university, and they're probably more likely to enroll. So there are some benefits to it. But I think, again, overarchingly, if you look at what's fair and what's right and what's just and what the Supreme Court focused on, if you're going to say that, you know, it's not fair for folks to have any type of benefit because of their racial background, despite the issues we still have in this country, then you can't. Um, confer those benefits to folks because of their legacy status. And the other argument that I believe Smirkanish made, if I'm not mistaken, was that if I can say this the right way, legacies tend to come from families that are more affluent and and that the less privileged students who actually come to the school benefit from their associations and connections with those legacy uh, students, meaning, you know, the legacies come with them, you know, the money and the connections. And by getting to know your your dorm mates and your classmates, you therefore benefit because you are now connected with people who are connected. Is that is that you know any kind of argument? You know, that, that's, that's a great question. And I, I understand that argument, too, but I think it's framed in a privileged paradigm. So there was a study that I found uh, in doing some research for this, according to an economist uh, named Raj uh, Chetty, that a child without a college degree from a family in the lowest income quintile has only a 5% chance to move to the highest quintile. But if that child graduates from one of America's most selective universities, the odds of making that leap rises from 5% to 60%. So there definitely is a benefit conferred upon folks, especially children uh, who come from families who aren't, you know, very economically viable um, to to have that association and have that education. Um, However, um, that paradigm, that the way it was framed, does not acknowledge that all students benefit from interaction and association with those who are from different backgrounds and racially and and economically. So by saying just, oh, students who are poor benefit from interacting with folks who have more money, folks who have more money benefit from interacting with students who are not like them. Exactly. And I, and I think you and I kind of discussed in emails my experience teaching the death penalty at University of Illinois down in Champaign. I would go down there on Saturdays and, and teach a class. And I had a couple of African-American students in my class. And I guess I just assumed they were going to be against the death penalty. I just thought that that might be their, their idea. But they weren't. And the reason they weren't is because they came from neighborhoods where people died. They were murdered. Family members had been murdered. And they felt strongly that in certain 
certain cases, the only penalty that's appropriate is the death penalty. So I learned, and so did the other students, learned from people who came from different walks of life than me. And what, you know, what better education than, than living with people, walking to school with people, talking to people in class, people that come from different countries, different races, different religions. It's, it's part of your college education, really. Exactly. And there's a saying that I like to repeat on the iron, iron sharpens iron. And I think my wife and I talk about this a lot. We both believe our lives have been enhanced because we both come from families which weren't economically um, very, you know, didn't have a lot of money, just to be blunt. Um, but our lives have been positively enhanced by interacting with folks, you know, from different backgrounds. And I think vice versa, you know, folks who came from more privileged backgrounds, hopefully their lives have been enhanced by interacting with other folks. Um, so I think that your values are strengthened, like you mentioned with your students, um, your views are changed and kind of sharpened, and your core beliefs can be strengthened by interactions with folks who differ from you. Absolutely. We're talking to Professor Sanford Williams, who's a lecturer at law at UCLA. Uh, when we come back, we're going to actually play a little music from your daughter, Nia CC, who has come out with her uh, single, which is really great. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to the Karen County Show on WGN. Welcome back. That's Nia CC, my my guest uh, professor. Uh, that's she's great. That is that new. Is that her brand new album that she just uh, put out? Yes, yeah, she's a singer songwriter and just dropped that single. As she says uh, this weekend, so um, I'm proud of her and uh, thank you for playing. We really appreciate it. Sure, it's called One Body by is Nia CC, correct? Yep, Nia CC. I really really like that. Professor Sanford Williams is a lecturer at law at UCLA. We're talking a little bit about legacy admissions. I had someone say that um, uh, in my texters said, you know, we we really think that um, we really think that that it's overrated that these Ivy League schools are overrated and Midwest Jesuit Catholic schools rule. And you know what makes me think of the joke? How do you know if someone went to Notre Dame because they tell you? Right? (laughs) 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 You know, rah, rah, rah. Anyway. um, Well, I I just jump in and say that, I mean, I've had friends, I live in California now, went to school in the East Coast, teach at UCLA. There are phenomenal schools all over this country, which folks don't realize. So I did go to an Ivy League school, Cornell, shout out to the Big Red, but there are tons of great schools which folks don't give credit to. So I hear them, and and they're shout out to the Midwestern schools. Absolutely. And and I I was a poor kid, so I I went to state schools. I went to state school undergrad and state school for law school. And you know what? It's what you make of it afterwards. Uh, And actually, you know, our state school, University of Illinois Law Schools, was a top school at the time. I think we were number 13 in the nation. And uh, I I came out of school without having uh, a mortgage for student loans. So so that was uh, so that was a good a good thing. So I'm going to talk a little bit you you know, you had this Fabulous education. You have an MBA. You got your, you know, Ivy League school. Your law degree. How, how did people think that you were a product of affirmative action when you went to school? Do you did you resent the idea that that you might have been people might have thought that? That's a great question. So um, I enrolled at Cornell University in College of Engineering in 1983, and I was 15 years old when I enrolled. How did that so happen? Because of um, my parents just kind of moved me up in school early, and I graduated from uh, North Academy at 15 years old and was fortunate enough to enter college at 15 um, in August of 83 and turned 16 in September. Um, so I just assumed I belonged. I never had any question. Um, and I think that, like, many of my classmates, and I was thinking about our friends, like uh, my wife, Anastasia, my friend Rodney and Mark and Teresa and Dexter and lots of other folks who went to Cornell with us, we just assumed we belonged. But it's a great question because even though we assume we belonged, 
Um, and we actually did belong. We've been successful, so I think we proved that we belong. Um, I think a lot of folks there, you know, treated us and looked at us like we didn't belong. And I can say many times at Cornell and even later in life up until today, I encounter people, no matter what room I go into, whether I say I'm a UCLA law school professor or I work at the SBC or um, whatever I do, people oftentimes still look at me and they presume I don't belong. And I think back to my daughter, Kiara, who's an attorney. She was on a flight, not this year, but recently, and she sat next to an elderly white gentleman and had a conversation with him back and forth. And during the conversation, he told her, and I asked her today just to make sure I had the quote right, he says, wow, you're incredible. I've never seen a colored lawyer before. Oh, my gosh. Um, and she was, you know, struck by that, and it didn't take her to her, her foundation, so to speak, but that just illustrates it. And he was a nice, nice person. He was nice to her. But there are still people who look at you and make presumptions about who you are and what you do. And I don't think that that's just because of affirmative action. I mean, we have sexism, implicit bias, um, systemic racism, other things that affect it. So uh, to directly answer your question, you know, I always assumed I belong. But, yes, I have been still now, and my children and family members experience it even now. My son is a physician, my wife is a physician, and other rooms we walk into where people just presume that we don't belong. Do you think that the striking down of affirmative action is going to be good for society? I mean, I, I, I look at the issue of diversity and, you know, the studies all show that in the workplace, let's just take them in the workplace, which is a little dip, bit of a different issue than admission to college, but diversity is good. It's good for the workplace. People like to be in diverse workplaces. It's good for customers to see different people from different walks of life who are, are, are providing services or, or products. Um, it's good for morale. It's, it's just good for everything. It's good for society because people are earning money, you know, and, and supporting themselves and, and putting their kids through great colleges like you did. So why, why, you know, is this going to be good or bad for schools? How do you predict? If you look at your, your, you've served on city school boards and you've looked at this issue of diversity, is this going to really harm schools, do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. I I probably talk about this for the next hour, but I'll try to break it down to a couple points. Uh, First, um, I don't think it's a valid criticism of a front of action but I, I should say, I don't think it's valid by taking affirmative action away, you're going to improve society. Because even taking away affirmative action, for example, I'd like to tell my kids, my daughter and I passed the bar exam. My wife and my son passed their medical boards. It wasn't affirmative action medical board. It wasn't an affirmative action bar exam. But we passed those all, but still yet we still looked upon differently. So with or without affirmative action, people still have viewpoints which they're going to maintain, uh, which is just going to be, you know, the way it is. So there's nothing that you really can, can, can do about that. Um, I do think that there is merit to diversity in schools. Um, I was looking at something online uh, talking about diversity in higher education, and some of the things they mentioned were it promotes personal growth, it strengthens communities in the workplace, it enhances economic competitiveness, and it helps, as you alluded to earlier with your uh, example from your class, that folks from different backgrounds kind of understand each other. So I think that this overall could have a negative impact because it will decrease the number of folks who are able to go to school. And just for numbers, I looked, I think, in California, um, when they had Proposition 2000, sorry, Proposition 209 in 1996, it prohibited California from using race and national origin as a proxy. Um, back in 1995, 7% of UCLA's first-year students were black. The next year after the proposition was enacted and they took away from the action, only 2% were black. So it overall will have a negative impact, but I don't think perceptions will change because perceptions have been there and we have to address the sexism and systemic racism stuff we have in society. 
um, to, to, to address those things, not just taking away this program. Do you see schools considering other factors that might assist in this? So, for instance, uh, income levels. Could you think schools are going to start to say what, what we're going to look at students who maybe didn't come from affluent backgrounds to try to mix up the, the, the group of people to, to, ha- to get some diversity that way? Great question. I think the schools will. The, the process, I know California has done that. And you asked me and mentioned my school board background. One thing I learned um, when I served in the Manassas City School Board for almost 12 years in Virginia, and um, Dr. Kevin Newman, who's there now doing a great job, we had a great school system, but not a ton of resources. And I think the biggest thing we need to do is to go back and look at the beginning. Um, there's a C.S. Lewis, Lewis quote that says, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. I think we need to change the beginning. So going back to those schools and making sure we have more equitable pre k to 12 education, um, and then giving our folks who teach those jobs the money they need to do that and giving students the resources they need will, will help going forward. And until we get there, I think your question about um, using income as a proxy is a great uh, way to look at it because a lot of kids who live in environments where their incomes or the resources aren't where they need to be can't reach their potential like other kids can because they don't have the resources. Absolutely. Uh, just a quick question to, to end the interview. I know you do some work for the FCC, um, and they're, um, it, it's, it, uh, you're the person in charge of congressionally mandated efforts to uh, identify and prevent digital discrimination. And I looked a little bit into this task force, and it's very, very interesting. Can you tell our listeners what uh, what Congress is doing and what this task force's job is? That's a great question. So during the pandemic, we realized that there was a lack of equity for broadband nationwide, not just in rural areas, but in rural areas and urban areas and all over this country where folks can get access to broadband and you need broadband to survive. That's pretty much, I think, it's a utility. So what Congress has mandated the FCC to do is to look at nationwide where there are gaps in digital broadband provisioning and help those citizens who don't have that access um, get that access so that we all can be connected in the way we need to in 2023. You know, we don't think about those things here in, in urban areas and, and, and whatever, but, you know, even kids doing schoolwork, they can't do their schoolwork without access. And, and people can't access the court filings. People can't access certain, you know, purchases if they don't have their broadband. And, and, uh, and, and you're right. It's something that we don't even consider. And, and how, would that, how would that work out? Would that, would that be money that would be allocated to try to bring it into the area? Lots of different things. That's a good question. So it's a matter of affordability, because even in urban areas, if you can't afford it, then you can't get access. Sure. Um, so we're looking at affordability, looking at where it's provision, and looking at digital literacy to make sure when folks do get you know, on that they are, have the literacy skills to be able to navigate the Internet. So we're looking at lots of different issues to try to make sure we can work with providers around the country to provide access to all our citizens um, in a robust fashion. That sounds sounds like good work. Sounds like you're busy, and it sounds like you're busy raising great kids, and it sounds like you've got a lot of success in your family, and uh, I wish you well. I know you're coming into Chicago, and I think we're going to meet up and maybe discuss this more. I look forward to meeting you, and I, I thank you for your time. And I have to also mention one thing I really love um, about um, teaching at UCLA. One thing that my students you know, kind of remind me of every day is that interacting with folks of different backgrounds helps you be the best person you can be. And I think that as a society, I mean, we need to empower our youth and our kids to be the best we can be. And these interactions, affirmative action or not, will help us um, reach that potential. Thank you so much. Professor Stanford Williams, uh, thank you for joining us on WGN.